a 21-year-old person has been experiencing gender dysphoria for several years. They feel like they identify as a man. They've been thinking about possible gender-affirming surgeries. But are they safe? They want to consider surgery, but have questions about the safety. What types of surgeries are there even? Are they reversible? They knew that there are resources out there, but they would also like to see physicians who are aware of gender-affirming care. Who should they see? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Today, we have a jam-packed episode on gender dysphoria and gender-affirming procedures, including gender-affirming surgery. Dr. Bella Evanesian is a board-certified plastic surgeon and an assistant professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery who provides surgical care to transgender patients, intersex patients, and to victims of female genital mutilation. She performs feminizing and masculinizing procedures of the face, chest, and genitals. She is a member of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society, as well as the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. Dr. Evanesian is a respected surgeon in New York City, providing care to an underserved population. We're so excited to have her on our podcast today. But before we begin, I do want to clarify a few, t- few statistics in the setting of gender-affirming procedures. There has been a significant increase in adults and youth who identify as transgender over the past several years. According to a 2022 June study by UCLA, Williams Institute, 1.6 million adults age 18 or older and youth from 13 to 17 identify as transgender in the United States. A person who identifies as a transgender person can have had gender confirmation surgery or gender affirmation surgery or gender affirming surgery, or they can be in the process of transition, or they may not have had any feminization or masculinizing surgeries. Most transgender medicine and surgery centers in the United States are comprehensive centers where gender-affirming care is provided. There is still some room for growth within the medical curriculum as it pertains to the psychosocial needs, medical pathophysiology, and availability of surgical procedures. In a comprehensive treatment program, patients can seek care for gender-affirming care from a variety of healthcare professionals, from minimally invasive to surgical interventions, So in this podcast, Dr. Avanesian will go through the many aspects of gender-affirming procedures, from the face to the chest to the genitalia. Generally speaking, gender-affirming care can be feminizing or masculinizing. So facial procedures can include feminizing or masculinizing parts of the upper, middle, or lower face, including the thyroid cartilage, otherwise known as the Adam's apple. And feminizing interventions for the chest can include breast augmentation, and masculinizing interventions for the chest can include mastectomy, a surgery which involves removing the breast tissue. Now, Dr. Avanesian herself will discuss the various surgeries available for the feminizing and masculinizing procedures for the genitalia. So I'm really excited to have her on. Welcome, Dr. Avanesian. We appreciate you for being on today's episode. 
you have a lot of expertise in sexual health and transgender medicine. So we're really going to pick your brain today about the surgical side. On our podcast, we've spoken a ton about physical therapy, lifestyle modifications, medications, injections for all types of different pain conditions, as well as other conditions. But today, we really want to dive deeper into the surgical options that are present for gender affirmation. So first off, tell us about what types of surgeries there are for gender affirmation. Thanks, Dr. Patel. It's a pleasure to be here. And we'll jump right in. So there are a number of procedures, both masculinizing and feminizing for gender affirmation. And they're procedures of the face, the chest, the genitalia, and also of the body. So can you tell us a bit more about what types of procedures within those areas that patients would be eligible for? When we talk about genital reconstruction, there's feminizing vaginoplasty, which includes the creation of the external genitalia, the vulvoplasty, and often also includes the creation of the vaginal canal, which is the actual vaginoplasty. Then there's masculinizing procedures called metoidioplasty, which basically creates a microphallus out of the enlarged, virilized clitoris sometimes extending the urethra to the tip of that so as to allow for standing micturition, so standing up to use the bathroom. And then there's phalloplasty, which creates a full phallus, sometimes also with the ability to urinate standing up and other times not. Also, sometimes with erectile potential or not. And all of the procedures depend on patient preference. There are also the reproductive organ surgeries. In vaginoplasty, we simultaneously perform an orchiectomy or removal of the testes if that hasn't been performed previously. And in phalloplasty or metoidioplasty or independently as a masculinizing procedure, some patients elect to undergo a vaginectomy and or salpingoophrectomy and a hysterectomy. And again, everything is very individualized to the patient. So different patients are interested in different procedures. In terms of the chest, there's breast augmentation, typically with implants for of feminization of the chest. And for masculinization, we usually perform subcutaneous mastectomies, sometimes through a limited incision, which is only an option for a number of patients who don't have a lot of excess skin. And then there's subcutaneous mastectomy with nipple reconstruction for patients with a lot of excess skin. And then for the face, There's facial feminization surgery, which is a broad term for a number of different procedures of the upper face, the mid face, and the lower face, and also usually involves the thyroid cartilage or Adam's apple. In addition, other surgeons perform uh, vocal feminization surgery. Facial masculinization procedures are somewhat less common, mostly because our society tends to accept more feminine men 
more so than masculine women. So there are fewer procedures and they're typically catered to uh, the patient's source of gender dysphoria. And then on top of everything that I've already mentioned, there are also some body-related procedures that help to address um, either feminizing or masculinizing the general body structure that someone has. That's so interesting. I really like the way that you broke it down in terms of the pelvic region, the chest, the face, and there are so many different types of gender-affirming procedures that are available. Um, Can you kind of walk us through that process of if somebody does decide to go through these procedures, how does it usually start? Is a group of surgeries recommended first and then the subsequent? Would you describe that a bit more for us? Sure. So again, this is very patient-specific and patient-catered care. And for every patient, a different body part is going to be a bigger source of dysphoria and their preference to address first. For some of my feminizing patients, for example, they prefer to undergo facial feminization surgery as a first step because it helps them complete their social transition and really feel comfortable uh, fully embracing their gender identity. Whereas other patients find so much dysphoria from their penis that the vaginoplasty is the first surgery that they want. It's very patient-specific. Exactly. And then with the masculinizing procedures, because there are so many different combinations, it really depends on the patient's goals for surgical outcome in planning the procedure and planning the order. For example, in phalloplasty, not every patient is interested in having a vaginectomy and a hysterectomy. Not every patient is interested in the presence of an erectile implant or possibly in standing to urinate. But other patients are interested in all of those things, which creates more complex procedures from the beginning, but also uh, additional stages because you have to heal the first stage successfully before you can progress to the next. That is so interesting. Can you tell me a bit more about the erectile implant? I've never heard of that before, and I'm really intrigued to know uh, what that means. So an erectile implant is something we talk about in phalloplasty. When we're talking about phalloplasty, after the phallus has been constructed and is fully healed, typically at least several months after the initial procedure, and all complications that were present in the beginning have fully resolved, then the patient can be a candidate for an erectile implant. That is a surgery that essentially inserts an erectile implant similar, actually identical to those used for erectile dysfunction in cisgendered men. And that erectile implant is placed into the phallus. And depending on the type, whether it's hydraulic or malleable, meaning uh, you activate it to be in its erect form. There is either a button or a pump, which is typically placed in the scrotum that can either hydraulically fill the implant and make it rigid. Or there is, if in the case of a malleable implant, 
and you can just straighten out the phallus and it assumes it's rigid form. Now, the difficulty with these erectile implants is that they're designed for cis men. So they're designed to go inside of this thick, fibrous tissue called the tunica albiginia that houses these erectile pillars. And that protects these devices from eroding through the tissues of the penis in erectile dysfunction patients. Unfortunately, for our transgender patients, in a phalloplasty, we don't have these same casings for the erectile implants. And our patients also tend to want to use their erectile implant and their phallus more. They tend to be younger and more more full of libido than the older patients that typically have the erectile devices. And as a result, a lot of the time they cause erosions with continued use. That's interesting. So for the most part, actually, it seems like a lot of these procedures can be done very safely. But could you tell us a bit more about anything that patients should be aware of before they do decide to go ahead with that, such as what you had mentioned with the erectile implant? Typically, when a patient contacts a transgender surgery center, ideally, it will be a multidisciplinary care center, meaning there will be different physicians, medical, surgical, endocrine, and social who are involved in coordinating care and getting the patient the care that they need. And care could include hormone therapy or progress to surgical care for the patients that are interested in pursuing that. In preparation for surgery, typically the bigger surgeries involve clearance from this multidisciplinary care team. So the patients will meet with social workers or members of the mental health team and undergo an assessment of their mental health comorbidities and their experience. Tell us a bit more about the multidisciplinary workup that goes behind these surgeries. So as we said, it's very patient-specific. When a patient finds like the Transgender Medicine Center of, of whatever academic institution, Can you kind of walk us through the process of how they, what type of workup they go through before they get to the surgical aspect of it? So a multidisciplinary care team is usually involved in assessing patients preoperatively. And those assessments will include conversations with social workers, with members of the mental health team. And with medical providers like endocrinologists or primary care providers to get a picture of the patient as a whole in terms of medical comorbidities and optimizing their medical status and then their mental health comorbidities, making sure they're well controlled. And then the social aspect, which includes making sure that they have the right supports in place for a successful surgical outcome and a safe recovery. That's so good to know. I'm sure many patients and many listeners who are listening to this episode are very happy to hear about that because it can seem very daunting to even consider 
gender affirming procedures. However, knowing that there is a multidisciplinary team from social workers to a team of mental health professionals as well that can help with the process from start to finish is very comforting. So what do you, what would you like to, for patients to know before they agree to surgery? What is your typical sort of discussion with patients before they embark? And I know there are, again, many patient-specific procedures to consider, but what do you wish that patients knew before they agree to surgery? One of the things that I always discuss with patients, and again, this depends on the type of surgery they're having, I think it's important to set someone's expectations, not just for what typically happens, but for all of the things that could potentially happen. It's good for a patient to have an understanding of the frequency of different complications and also just how long routine follow-up takes and the timeline of things to expect during that recovery. For example, for vaginoplasty, the recovery is a very long process because for about a year, sometimes up to a year and a half, there's some element of external genital swelling. So you don't reach your final aesthetic outcome from that surgery until about a year after the surgery is complete. In addition, you're healing and resolving the swelling associated with the vaginal canal for up to two years after surgery. And they notice that in their dilation, which is a big commitment requirement for after surgery for successfully maintaining the vaginal depth and width. It's important to know the things that get in the way of a happy and healthy recovery. So I tell patients to expect to have an easier time with their dilation every three months or so. The first three months after vaginoplasty are the hardest part of the recovery and the first month being the biggest adjustment period, just when swelling is the worst. and everything is new and it's a learning process. And then after three months, things get much easier as the healing is progressing and the swelling starts to resolve. But it's not until about six months when they're feeling much more like themselves and have no further activity restrictions. But then even at the one and a half year mark, on occasion, if you go on a long hike, say you climbed a small mountain that day, you might notice that dilating feels a little tighter, less comfortable in the days to come. Eventually, probably after the two-year mark, that feeling will go away and you never think about your vagina no matter what you're doing. That's so good to know. So setting expectations, and I think that's such an important part of a lot of medical practice, but especially for this, because they are big procedures in that sense. So I really, I really do like that in terms of setting expectations and um, especially in terms of time to heal and recovery. So I also wanted to know, this is still a relatively newer area of medicine. And are you seeing patients who are having their procedures reversed? Uh, that is something that has been in the media. However, just as a physician, what are you? What are your thoughts on that? So, I will say that in our practice, we have over a thousand primary vaginoplasty patients thus far. 
not one of those patients has asked for a reversal procedure, which is called detransitioning. Detransitioning is a big deal. It basically means the patient no longer wishes to live in that gender um, and would like to transition back. Although we have had a couple of consultations from outside patients, uh, patients that have been operated on by other surgeons who are seeking to transition back, we have not personally encountered detransitioning within our practice. That said, I think detransitioning is different from regret after surgery. And typically the regret seen after a surgical procedure is associated with the recovery and how challenging that recovery may be. For example, a patient suffering a complication may have a period of thinking, why did I do this? Is this really better than what I had started with? And that's a temporary feeling. Every patient that I've had who has expressed those kinds of questioning periods, eventually, once they're past their complication, have no question as to whether or not it was worthwhile to get surgery. That's, again, a very good way to put it, because there are so many uh, aspects to think about when undergoing these procedures. Are there any long-term consequences that you warn patients about or potentially a point of, quote-unquote, no return? Again, questions or hesitations that patients may express. Yes. So I'm going to break this down into the different types of procedures. So for genital or gonad surgeries, so anything involving the reproductive system, the procedures can be sterilizing in that you're removing the patient's future ability to reproduce. And that's an important discussion to have before surgery, especially if a patient is interested in having biological children. So there's fertility preservation that's available for both the transmasculine and transfeminine patients. Sometimes this can be expensive, and I'm not sure if this is covered by insurance, but there's sperm banking and potential for sperm extraction prior to orchiectomy. And there's also um, in vitro fertilization type procedures that harvest the ova to save for possible future reproduction for the transmasculine patients. That is one very important aspect of genital and reproductive surgeries. For masculinizing top surgery, because we're removing the full breast gland, or at least the vast majority of the breast gland, the potential to breastfeed in the future is lost. It's unlike other surgeries of the chest, including breast augmentation, breast reduction, which can get in the way of breastfeeding, but typically don't affect it significantly. With, with mastectomy, the breast is gone and there is no ability to breastfeed in the future if a patient decides that they're interested in that. And then with facial procedures, it's really important 
to focus on the features that are causing dysphoria and what specifically about them is causing dysphoria. Because as a plastic surgeon, you can change any feature, but change isn't necessarily an improvement. And it if you change something just to change it, you still have to accept the risks associated with that procedure. And then the consequence of living with a different feature in the place of the original one, which may or may not make you happier or more comfortable in your skin. Whereas if you're addressing a feature that is really causing an exacerbation of gender dysphoria, you're going to be happier if the element about that feature that was really bothersome to you is now gone or different. I really like the way that you broke that down, not just by anatomical region, but also in terms of the future implications as well as how it means in terms of gender dysphoria. So a couple more questions. As a chronic pain physician, I can't not ask, but um, what is your experience with patients who may develop pain or not just acute pain, but chronic pain potentially after surgeries? In a majority of patients, pain after vaginoplasty, for example, is pretty well tolerated. One thing that causes a lot of discomfort is swelling. And swelling takes the form of discomfort and then later pain. And the problem with swelling in the pelvic region is that it can pile on itself. And it usually takes about two days before it reaches its peak. And additionally, even though this anatomic area is already not great at clearing swelling prior to surgery, when we've done surgery, we also cut so much of the lymphatic drainage, the the clearance channels for the swelling. So swelling becomes an issue. So a patient even walking around their apartment too much can cause extreme exacerbation of swelling and then pain and difficulty dilating. And unfortunately, the one thing that makes the pain better is less swelling, which can be achieved through rest and also dilation, which mechanically pushes the swelling out of the tissues. But dilating gets more painful with the swelling. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. Um, So I do a lot of counseling with the patients regarding dilation and limiting their activities in order to prevent this, this building of swelling to cause pain. Separately, I have had one patient who had what I think was complex regional pain syndrome. And this is one patient out of about 300 primary vaginoplasties. This patient had much more pain in her day-to-day experience at multiple points of recovery. Her pain, I think, did improve after over a year following surgery. And it improved with pelvic physical therapy, as well as mental health care. So it was a combination of a number of different uh, contributing factors for that patient in particular. 
sometimes to a lesser degree, we'll see areas of hypersensitivity. And that can be caused by something anatomic, like excess granulation tissue, which just hurts to touch, but it's basically a wound that once healed should be pain-free. Or nerve pain, like um, the clitoris. The clitoris sometimes experiences hypersensitivity. We don't see it very often, but maybe around 5% of the time, it'll hurt to light touch. The treatment for that that I recommend is desensitization therapy. Basically, not with a physical therapist, but something you can do at home. Just touch it bunches of times throughout the day until you desensitize it and it doesn't hurt anymore to touch. And at that point, light touch can become more pleasurable and once the pain is gone. That's so interesting. And again, I learned so much as well as a pain physician about some of the changes that occur in that region. Dr. Avanesian, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you for coming on our podcast. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at thefemalepaindocs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.